Thank you, Clayton. A little word to a younger pastor. Uh, if you can, always get a title that nobody knows what it means, and in that way, you can't be evaluated on the basis of that. Um, morning, everyone. I, I'm thrilled to be here uh, because uh, just being in this building uh, reminds me this is one of the most gratifying experiences I ever took part in. Uh, I was uh, pastoring, I was on the staff at Fellowship Dallas, and we had a lot of young uh, people starting to come, and uh, I, I really was not, I've never been real interested in seating capacity, I've always been more interested in sending capacity. So we had a bunch of them coming, and I said, what, what if we planted a church somewhere near White Rock? And uh, so we started meeting on Sunday nights, and we had a really good group of over 100 fairly young folks. Uh, and uh, that was the launch of White Rock Fellowship. We started meeting at Hotchkiss Middle School. And, and then this church uh, that had been here quite a while, it was shrinking. And uh, they, when we approached them, they said, we, we, you know, our building may be available. So we thought we had it and uh, then found out we didn't have it. And this is the way it is in life. It's called the vision and the death of a vision. But you have to go through the vision and then the death of a vision. And oftentimes the vision will come back. Um, so it's so exciting to be here to realize it did come back. Uh, and then we went looking for a pastor. And I heard about this guy uh, uh, named Fritchie and, uh, in Austin. And I happened to be friends with the guy he was working for. And I've never liked this habit we have in churches, which I think is sad, where if we need somebody, we just go steal them from some church. And I, I just don't like that. So I felt like, uh, if nothing else, it's just rude. But, uh, but uh, so I called uh, my friend Robin, and I said, listen, man, I hear this guy Fritchie's great, and I hear he's got a great future ahead of him, and we're looking for a young pastor that could, you know, pastor this congregation we have, and but I don't want to, if, if, if you losing him hurts your church, it doesn't make sense. I am not going to hurt some other church to benefit something we're doing. And uh, I'll never forget what Rob said. Rob said, you know, Gary, he said, I appreciate you calling and asking. He said, but I'm not the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to play Holy Spirit in Jeff's life. Uh, he is awesome. And of course, we'd love to keep him. But if this is what God is doing in his life, we will send him out with our blessing. And that's what happened. So uh, then I had Jeff steal Clayton and, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, but anyways, it's just been a great, uh, a great opportunity um, to be part of all that God has done uh, through uh, fellowship and White Rock Fellowship. So I'm, uh, my assignment, uh, I, I get to get, be the guy that, it talks about the first person mentioned in Hebrews 11. When you read Hebrews 11, you know, there's like, I counted, I think, 15 by name, and then there's some groups that are mentioned there as people who are examples of faith. So clearly what we're trying to do in this series is we're trying to understand what is faith? And more importantly, do I have it? Uh, what does it look like? How can I exercise it? My assignment is to take the first guy whose name was Abel. Uh, but before we get into his story, I want to read something to you uh, that I read not long ago and, uh, and see if this uh, resonates with you. Have you ever felt this way? 
Lord, how long do we have to ask for help? You're not listening. Violence is everywhere, but you seem to do nothing. Do we have to witness evil deeds forever? Why do we have to watch all this misery? Wherever we look, we see destruction and violence. We are surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. Meanwhile, the law has become paralyzed and there's no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become a joke. Where do you suppose I read that? Editorial page of a newspaper a couple weeks ago. Those words were written 2,600 years ago by a man by the name of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk laid his complaint out before the Lord. We, we are not the, the first to feel like our country is coming apart at the seams. I feel that way sometimes. When you see thousands that are killed from fentanyl that's pouring through our southern border, when you see groups of looters walk into a store and just take whatever they want, when, when you see random attacks of people in our cities and the attackers are out of jail in a couple of hours, how, how should we respond to this seemingly rapid decline of our culture? Well, I'll tell you what I like to do. You could complain about it. I'm good at that. I get into conversations with people. We just complain. How, is that a good solution? Of course not. We better do more than that. How about boycotts? You know, boycotts seem to have a measured effect. I mean, just ask Bud Light and Target. There's something going on there. But boy, boycotts have a limited effect. Um, how about we get some better politicians? If you can find any. There are all kinds of things that we do to try to resolve some of these seemingly embedded issues within our culture. But I think the most effective response uh, is the one suggested by uh, the humorist that great theologian, Garrison Keillor. And Garrison Keillor said this, when the country goes temporarily to the dogs, cats must learn to be circumspect, uh, walk on fences, sleep in trees, and have faith that all this woofing is not the last word. Uh, can I say to you that the book of Hebrews affirms for us that all this woofing is not the last word. In fact, I would go even further. I would say the central exhortation of the book of Hebrews um, is, to, is to have faith and persevere. Keep believing. Hang in there. Trust God. And in time, what God has promised will come true. So have faith. Have real faith. Which leads to the question, so what exactly is real faith? 
Um, last Sunday, Randy kicked off the series uh, uh, and told us what true faith is not. He said, uh, faith uh, is not just a set of beliefs. Faith is not just believing that God exists. After all, the scriptures tell us, even the devil believes that. So that's not faith. Uh, let me add a couple more faulty descriptions of faith. Faith is not positive thinking. It's not just, you know, working yourself up to believe that everything's going to turn out okay. Faith is not an abstract force. And if I can grab hold of enough of it, I can be wealthy and never be sick. That's not faith. Uh, faith is, 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 is not um, uh, sincerity. I think sometimes faith and sincerity get confused because we're taught in our culture, you should never criticize what someone else believes because they may believe it sincerely. Um, and I, and I, you know, I think we misunderstand sometimes. There's a difference between, between criticizing or being critical and thinking critically. And if you think critically, you, you have to realize that sometimes someone can be very, very sincere in what they believe, but they can be sincerely wrong. I'll never forget this couple uh, uh, in our church. They went to San Antonio. They were invited to come to a conference by somebody that, in, that lived in San Antonio. And they didn't have a lot of money, so this person paid for their enrollment and also said, listen, why don't you just stay at our apartment? We, we have a son and daughter-in-law in town. We'll go stay with them. We know you guys will arrive late on a Friday night for this weekend conference. You just go to our apartment. You feel free. Just stay there. And they gave him specific instructions on where the apartment was. And they said, we're going to leave a key under the mat and just go on in, make yourself at home, and we'll see you Saturday morning at the conference. So the couple goes to San Antonio. They get there late on a, Saturday, a Friday evening. Uh, and, and they go to this apartment complex, which is probably like where some of you live, where it can be a little confusing because every block looks the same. And so they drive around and they're a little, but they finally find the door with a number on it. And so they go up and sure enough, they lift up the mat and there's the key. And so they go on in they make themselves at home. They slept in the apartment all night. The next morning they got to the conference and the guy greets them and says, so where did you guys stay last night? They said, well, we stayed at your apartment. No, what time did you get there? Uh, we got in about 9.30, 10. No, he says, I went there at 11 just to make sure you guys were okay. And he said, there was nobody in our apartment. <laughs> Suddenly it dawned on them, they had spent the night in some total stranger's apartment. They were so sincere. They sincerely believed they were in the right apartment. They slept sincerely all night long in some total stranger's bed. They got up the next morning, helped themselves to some breakfast, very sincerely, and they went to the conference and realized they had just stayed in some total stranger's place. I just always, I'll never forget that, because I want to know from that guy, what did you think when you got home and people had been, who, you know, what is that old Goldilocks thing? Somebody's been sleeping in my bed? And I asked, I asked the couple, I said, did you guys ever have any indication you were in the wrong place? They said, well, 
not really. They said, there were some cigarette butts in the ashtray and we didn't know they smoked. Uh, and there were some muscle magazines and Bill, who was about 65, and we didn't know he was into that. Uh, so it's such a good example that you don't measure faith by how sincere someone believes something. So those are several things of what faith is not, but obviously that doesn't help much. We don't know what faith is. And that's why we're in Hebrews chapter 11. But I don't want to start there. I want to start in the book of Luke. It was read for us this morning. And I want to take a look at that story that we just read about. And here's why. Because if I want to know what the definition of faith is, I think the best place to go is ask the person who is the author of faith. I mean, the Bible says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. So Jesus probably knows what faith is. And he tells us what it is in Luke chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, let me pause here because I want to say this. This is the only thing I think I'm going to say about mercy ships, unless I think of two or three more things. But uh, we have a a tagline in mercy ships. We're bringing hope and healing to the world's forgotten poor. We, We chose that because hope and healing, hope is proclamational. It's a message. Healing is incarnational. Jesus did both of these things. Jesus was obsessed with the message of the kingdom. It was the first thing he talked about in his public ministry. It was the last thing he talked about in his public ministry, Acts 1-3. So Jesus talked about the kingdom all the way through and he kept saying, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. But what Jesus did was he would teach and he would share this message of the kingdom and then he would demonstrate it and confirm the reality of it by doing miracles. Understand this, folks. It's very important because you may have friends that go to a church where they, they want miracles to be normative. And if you have faith, you'll see people who you'll do miracles. Jesus never did miracles just for miracles' sake. He wasn't trying to do tricks like pull a rabbit out of his hat. He wasn't trying to draw a crowd. What he was doing was he was confirming with the miracle the message that he proclaimed. For example, he would say something, and by the way, this, this is why I'm involved with mercy ships. Because we are a sign and a foretaste of the kingdom to come. For example, the kingdom of God, there are no blind people. So when we go to Muslim countries, we say, watch this. We're going to heal these blind people. In the kingdom of God, there are not going to be any crooked legs on little kids. Watch this. We're going to straighten those legs. In the kingdom of God, there's no children with cleft palates. None of them will be buried alive in the village because they're considered cursed. That doesn't happen in the kingdom of God. So watch us fix this cleft palate. So Jesus basically is obsessed with this idea of the kingdom. So he he teaches about it and then he confirms it. And he's now going to confirm it here in Luke chapter 7. So after he had finished all his sayings, he entered Capernaum and there was a centurion who had a servant who was sick at the point of death. So he was very sick and he was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. There's a lot of dynamics in this, isn't there? This is a Roman centurion 
who is steeped in paganism, the worship of many gods. But there's something about Jesus. There's something about this monotheistic, one God idea that he's drawn to. But he doesn't feel like he has the authority to ask Jesus anything. So he sends some elders of the Jews to to ask Jesus to heal his servant. And when they came, uh, they pleaded with him earnestly. They said, he's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. It's one of my favorite places on the planet. I've taught over a dozen times in that very synagogue. And to stand there and to think, this is, the synagogue's not still there, but the foundation is uh, the very foundation it was built on. And so they said, please do this. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends and they said, watch this. Lord, you know what? You don't even have to come. Don't trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you under my roof. Man, is that humility or what? I am not worthy to have you under my roof. Therefore, I didn't presume to come to you, but say the word. Just say the word and let my servant be healed. For here's what he understood. Okay, this is about faith. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, my paraphrase is, his mouth dropped open. He marveled at what this pagan Roman centurion recognized in him. And he turned to the crowd that had followed him and he said, I'm going to tell you the truth. Even in Israel, people who should be examples of faith, even in Israel, I have not found such what? Faith. I have not found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So Jesus defines faith as acting with confidence in the authority of his word. Uh, uh, We practice faith when we take God at his word, or as Tony Evans says, faith is acting like God is telling the truth. And in Hebrews 11, we have at least 15 examples of people who acted like God was telling the truth. And the first example of faith offered in Hebrews 11 is the faith of Abel. Now, the writer of Hebrews, I'm so thankful for this when I was asked to do Abel. I, I've never preached on Abel. So I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. I mean, I know the story, but how would you put that into a sermon? Well, (laughs) thankfully, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews uh, did it for me. Because if you look at Hebrews 11, verse 4, he lays out a perfect three-point message. And if you've been around church for any length of time, you know that all great sermons have three points, sometimes seven, but usually three points. And here are the three points. They're right there in Hebrews 11:4. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain. Point two. By faith, Abel was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. 
Point three, and by faith, he still speaks even though he's dead. So let's turn right now, let's look at Genesis 4, because if you're not familiar with the story, we'll look at it again. It was read for us. But I want to go back to it because I want to talk about what happened here. And see if you notice anything in the story that makes you go, huh, that's strange. Chapter 4 of Genesis, now Adam knew his wife. I, don't, I love that verb, the Hebrew verb yada. It, it, it's to know intimately. Um, you know, the Hebrews could have, in, in the Hebrew language, it could have said, and Adam made love to his wife. Or Adam was intimate with his wife. Or Adam procreated. No, 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 no. The writer intentionally uses that verb yada. Which is a good reminder to all you young couples. Man, um, a relationship, a husband and wife relationship, uh, is, is not about the cooperative positioning of two bodies. It's about intimacy. It's about truly knowing someone. And I've been married 45 years. And I can tell you there's not much that my wife doesn't know about me. And yet, <laughs> wonder of wonders, she still loves me. <laughs> Blows my mind. So they, Adam knew his wife Eve. And she conceived and bore Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. And Cain, a worker of the ground. So have two brothers, one's a rancher, one's a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord, and since Cain was a worker of the ground, what do you suppose Cain would bring forth as an offering in worship to God? He brought forth uh, the fruit of the ground. And Abel, he's a rancher, and he brought forth the firstborn of the flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Counselors will tell you this, right? Some of you, are, if you're a counselor, you know, you look at someone's affect. You can read their face. And it's very vivid here that his face falls. That means he's angry. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well... Will you not be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And so Cain goes out in the field and we have the first recorded incident of murder, not just any murder, but fratricide, the murder of a brother against his brother. And now we know we've got some problems here already in the Bible. You know, the first two chapters of the Bible are paradise. The third chapter, all hell breaks loose. And it's all hell, almost all the way through. Until Revelation 19. The wonderful symmetry in the scriptures. You know, the first two chapters, paradise. Third chapter, I mean, total disintegration. Chapter 19 of Revelation, the, the, the solution to the disintegration Chapters 20 and 21 of Revelation, paradise is restored. Love the symmetry of that. So Abel uh, is killed by his brother Cain. 
What does this tell us and what does this tell us about faith? Here's the first thing I want you to see. Faith is doing what God says even when we don't completely understand. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith Abel uh, offered God a better sacrifice than Cain. And you really, I mean, any good thinking person has got to read that story and go, what's up with that? I mean, Cain just brought what you would think he would bring. He was a farmer, so he brought the first fruits of what he had grown. And Abel was a rancher, so of course he brought one of the flock. So how do we, how do we reconcile that? I'll label this as an opinion because the Bible doesn't exactly tell us. But, but I personally believe that the reason that God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's because Abel was the one that God had prescribed. And Cain brought forth what was convenient to him. Now, we don't hear that conversation. We don't see that conversation. But to really understand that that's implied in the text, you have to go back to Genesis 3. Because you'll know this. Genesis 3 now, uh, Adam and Eve uh, have disobeyed God. They've eaten the fruit. Uh, and I, I, and this, is, this is certainly not in the scriptures, but in my uh, divine imagination, uh, I think what happened was Eve took a bite of the fruit and Adam comes rolling up and he says, what every husband has ever said to his wife, you going to eat the rest of that? And so he ate and they fell. And so how do we know they fell? Because suddenly for the very first time, it says that they were, in Texas terms, they were naked. Now, hold on. They were naked. The Bible makes a point of that. They were naked. Yeah? Well, what were they before this? She wasn't in a prom dress and he in a tux. They've always been naked. What's the scripture trying to tell us? Yes, they're naked, but they didn't know that before. They were totally God-focused. They didn't worry about that part of, uh, about themselves. But now suddenly, they're no longer just God-conscious. Now they are self-conscious. We're naked. And they start looking in the mirror. And we haven't taken our eyes off of each other since. Just taking our eyes off ourselves. And so, what does God do? God wants to bring a solution to them. Adam decides he's going to solve the problem. So he plucks off a bunch of fig leaves, right? That's handy. There must have been a bunch of fig trees around. He plucked off some fig trees, um, probably with Eve's help. I don't know. Maybe he was a good seamstress, but they sew them into some kind of garment and they cover their own nakedness. Again, reading between the lines and God says, "Mm -mm, no, you can't solve your own problem. I'm not interested in fig leaf solutions. There's only one thing that's going to solve your problem. And then we read, this is the first hint of the gospel in the scriptures. Genesis 3 verse 21 says this. And the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. No, these plants are not going to do the job. Something has to die. And the first example of innocent blood shared in the scripture was the life of an animal taken by God to be able to cover the consequences 
of Adam and Eve's nakedness. And he, even in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, we're told that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So blood has to be shed. A fig leaf solution will never do. Um, animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, because it's bloody, right? Some people say, oh, Christianity, it's a bloody religion. Well, it is in the, in the sense that there's a lot of animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. Why? It's not because those animal sacrifices solved the problem of sin. All of that blood that was being shed pointed forward to the cross and to the Lamb of God, the only, the, the only uh, response to sin, the only solution to sin, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what I believe is that Cain got the same information as Abel. I believe Adam and Eve taught their sons this, this whole thing, that when it comes to worship, you don't just bring what's convenient. Fig leaf solutions will never do. You bring what God prescribes. You worship in the way that God prescribes. And I want to say this because I know why there's a lot of young uh, couples and young people and young singles and some seminary students, but... One of the things that's happened in the last couple of years that I've noticed um, is a new concept to people that are my age, but the idea of deconstructing everything. You've heard that term? So we've deconstructed the church, we're deconstructing the Bible, we're de deconstructing the faith. What, what that simply means is somebody looks with some amount of skepticism and says, you know, we really need to test some of these truth propositions because we're not sure we just believe them because that's what we've always heard. Now, I'm okay with some of that. I'm, I'm kind of a skeptic by nature. And I'm okay with deconstructing just about anything as long as we also deconstruct other truth propositions. For example, if you're going to deconstruct Christianity, why don't you deconstruct atheism? I mean, there's some good ways to deconstruct atheism. In fact, here's a simple one. Do you know that archaeologists have never discovered a civilization of atheists? Worship seems to be hardwired into the human psyche. And so the whole idea of deconstruction is just, if you're a skeptic by nature, be, then be skeptical. But be skeptical about alternatives to Christianity. And here's what I think. I truly believe this. I think if you do that, you'll find your way back to Jesus. Because, because what I know about Jesus, he's the only one who sees our brokenness, and acknowledges our problem, and then does something about it to solve the problem. So um, we come to God um, on one basis, uh, and that is that we are sinners and that the penalty for our sin must be paid. Uh, and it must be paid in a particular kind of way. Um, that The lambs that they sacrificed in the Old Testament were not the solution, but they pointed forward to the solution. In fact, um, I love uh, uh, how many times the scripture talk about this, which is, by the way, my sermon is about this long, and the first point is about this long, okay? I don't want you to get nervous, because <laughs> sometimes people are in their minds going, man, if the first point's that long and he's got three, we're going to be here a long time. No, the next two are pretty quick. 
but I want to lay the foundation. Because the second point comes out of Hebrews 11.4. Number one, faith is what God says, even when we don't understand doing what God says. Second one is trusting God is the essence of righteousness. Uh, the writer in 11.4 says, by faith, Abel was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And, and what he does, he, said, he brings together faith and righteousness. I think righteousness is really misunderstood. When you hear the word righteous, uh, you, you think of perfection. You think, man, I'm not righteous because to be righteous, you have to be perfect. Anybody righteous? No. Apostle Paul says nobody's righteous. Uh, so what the scripture tells us here is that, that faith is the answer to righteousness. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man. Um, and it says this all through the scriptures. For example, if you go back to Habakkuk, uh, the, who I quoted from at the very beginning of the message, Habakkuk 2.4 says this, you'll recognize this, the righteous shall live by faith. That's how you prove your righteousness. You trust God. Uh, and it says this all the way through. Another passage that was read this morning, coming out of Galatians 3. Now, now it is evident that no one is justified or made righteous. That's what justification is. No one is made righteous before God by the law because the righteous shall live by faith. And he quotes Habakkuk. Uh, Hebrews 10, 34 through 39. I'm not going to read it. But if you look at that, the, the, these people are commended uh, for the, some of the things that they have done by faith because that's what leads to righteousness. Romans 4, the apostle Paul says, shall, what shall we say then uh, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. If Abraham was made righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Abel believed God. And the text says it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He came the same way that God had outlined for him. And, and out of the, one of the truths that, that we can take away uh, from this message about Abel is that we cannot expect to have God's solution to our problems by practicing and trusting our own human instincts. Trust God. Do what God says. Uh, some of the people that this letter was written for, the letter to the Hebrews, uh, by virtue of the letter to the Hebrews, they were Jewish. And one of the struggles that they had that's being addressed is that they were hedging their bets. You ever hedged your bets? You know, you, you want the new thing, but you don't want to let go of the old thing. And that's what they were doing. They're saying, we, we want Jesus, and we want all that's given by the new covenant, but we don't want to let go of the old covenant. And we want to we hold on to both. But faith doesn't work that way. Faith looks forward. And all of these people, including Abel, were looking forward, even though they didn't fully understand. They were looking forward to how God was going to solve the problem of sin. Last one is this. By faith, Hebrews 11, 4 says, 
By faith he still speaks even though he is dead. So faith leaves a lasting legacy. Um, because Abel was the first man to learn the relationship between faith and righteousness, the writer says, Abel still speaks, even though he's dead. Um, can I say to you, I, that's probably the only, um, the only goal left in my life, <laughs> is that my grandkids were here last service. They were on their way. They'd come last night. Uh, and stayed here, and then they headed back home and dropped by here for this service. And I looked out at my two grandsons, and I thought, you know what? I, I want to still speak to those boys, even when I'm gone, because I want them to remember their papa and how he trusted God and how he went through some difficult times and how he never gave up, never gave up on his wife, never gave up on his family, never gave up on the church, never gave up on God. And I want to still speak to those boys after my voice is silenced. I, um, I was reading and preparing this message. And, and one guy said, yeah, you know, Hebrews 11 is the Westminster Abbey of the scriptures. Because Westminster Abbey has a bunch of famous people uh, in crypts. There are a bunch of dead men's bones. In there. And I thought, that's what? I've been to Westminster Abbey. Nobody's speaking in there. They're all dead. There are a bunch of dead men's bones in there. But Abel, according to the text, is not dead. He still speaks. He says to you, and he says to me, trust God's word even when you don't understand. Don't trust in your own ability and your own human cleverness. Trust in Jesus. That's the road to righteousness. Cling to him. He is the substance of our faith. Remember in the very beginning of Hebrews 11, Randy mentioned it last week, faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things unseen. The writer has in mind substance. And what's the substance of what he's talking about? It's found in, in, in chapter uh, 11 of Hebrews uh, in about verse 37, where it says, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. That there is one coming who is the solution to the problem. Now think about it. If you were an Old Testament saint, then you were believing and trusting God to solve the problem of sin, but you didn't see it coming, but you knew that it would come. And guess what? Jesus came right on time. Now as New Testament saints, how do we practice faith? We're going to practice it this morning. When you take that bread and you take that, dip it in that, or drink the cup, what are we doing? We're saying, I believe that Jesus will keep his promise. I don't see it yet. I don't understand how it's going to happen. I read a book on end times, and that guy seemed to know how it was going to happen. It was all put together. Can I tell you something about end times books? I'm not saying don't read them. But, but I will say this. One thing I know for sure People are always asking me, what do you think of this book? What do you think of that book? I'd say the only thing I'm 100% sure of that any person who has ever predicted the date of Christ's return has been wrong. Every single time. That's the only thing I'm sure of. But we know he's coming. And that's why we live by faith. We cling to faith. We cling to the promises. And don't forget this, because some of you are here and go, well, I don't know. I know some people, they got a lot of faith. But boy, I, I struggle in my faith. I, 
reason my daughter and her family was here is because last night we celebrated my, my other daughter's 40th birthday, which makes me, I, we had her when I was 12, so uh, uh, we have 40th birthday, and she's a twin, and uh, she is a sweetheart. I love my daughters, and I love my son, two, two daughters and a son, and the one daughter who's the twin, she is never, she amazes me. She trusts God 24-7. She's just never thought to be skeptical about any of it. My son, on the other hand, I've lived with him <laughs> through a roller coaster experience in his faith. I'm happy to say he's still hanging in there because he learns the hard way. He just, I don't know why he insists on it, but he learns the hard way that God's way is the right way. God's way is the best way. So you're here today and you say, I don't really know if I have much faith. Can I just suggest this to you? You don't need very much faith in thick ice to get across the frozen lake. You don't need a lot of faith to do that. On the other hand, you may say, I'm a person of great faith. Well, let me take you to the lake that has thin ice on it and go ahead and practice your great faith. Can I tell you how it'll end? You're gonna be cold and wet. So it's not the issue of how much faith you have. It's the issue of the substance of your faith. And here clearly the writer says, the substance of our faith is Jesus. So if you really want to be faithful to God, if you really want to be true to the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11 who have gone before us, then press on by faith. God's promises are sure, even if we have to wait for them. Uh, I'll end where I started. Uh, we began with Habakkuk's complaint. Uh, here's God's response to Habakkuk's question. What's up, God? What's up with all this? And God says, just after Habakkuk finally shuts up, God says, look around the nations. Look and be amazed. For I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. Man, God is up to something. And the question is, do we believe that it's going to end well? Do we believe that God is going to keep his promises? We know that God is up to something good. Because the writer says, the coming one will come and will not delay. The promise to these Old Testament saints was fulfilled when Jesus came. So even though we don't see him yet, we wait. But we don't wait like a condemned criminal on death row. We don't wait that way. We wait like a groom waits for his bride to walk down the aisle. Right? And we know that Jesus is the groom and we're the bride, but, but I've done probably... I'm, I'm estimating 400 weddings. Um, I'd much rather do funerals, but I've done lots of weddings. I don't like weddings because everybody, it has to be perfect. And uh, you got to do all that stuff. And then uh, people are fighting. Uh, could you get out of the way in the picture? Because we want to get a good, uh, I love funerals. Because some people have never darkened the door of a church. They show up at the funeral. And I get a chance to tell them the good news of the gospel. But weddings, I've done so many weddings. And you know how a wedding goes, right? The bride gets the back, and I always standing down here in the middle, and the groom's next to me, and the bride, and they throw open the doors, and 
every, all of a sudden, then the ping pong game begins, right? Because if you're sitting on the aisle, it's always hilarious. I watch people on the aisles, and they're, and they're going. <laughs> Why? Because they want to see how this guy reacts. You know, there's not much you can do to make a guy look better, right? Comb his hair, put on a tux. It's about the best you can do. But brides, are you kidding me? I, I have never seen a bad looking bride from this distance. But there have been, <laughs> been some moments where as they get closer, it's like, mm, you know. <laughs> but how do you make a grown man cry? Just throw open those doors and let him see his bride. And you see the tears come. And you realize what he's thinking. That's how we wait. We don't wait for Jesus like, I guess we're going to wait. At. No, we wait with great expectation. We wait with great enthusiasm. We trust God, even when we don't understand. We trust God, and it's counted to us as righteousness. And we trust God all the days of our lives, never letting go of faith. And we will speak even when we're gone. Great opportunity for you now to exercise faith. If you're here and you haven't been to this church before and you've maybe been part of some other church or some other tradition, just know that this, this church uh, offers open communion. Um, it means that you know, you're welcome to participate. If you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you've never, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, but you wanna be. I can't think of a better way to start. You take that little piece of bread and you dip it in that juice and you say, Lord God, I don't understand all of this. I don't think it's magic bread. I know it's not even wine. Um, and it's certainly not blood. I don't understand all this. But I'm going to do what you've told me to do. Because I'm just going to trust you. And God will be so thrilled. I know you'll put a smile on his face. Father, I pray for every person in this room. I pray that as we close this time together, that we've heard the words of life. That we've heard you tell us that, man, it's not by works. We can't solve our own problem. We can't do it by some sort of cleverness. We, we got to trust Jesus, who's already done it. So we don't spell Christianity by D-O-N-E, or, or by D-O. We spell it by D-O-N-E. It's already been done, and we just have to embrace it and believe it. So Lord, please accept our offering, the offering of our own lives as we close this service. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.